so bad for you having to pronounce that name Conwisher. That's like, you said that just right. Do you know what it means? It's Conwisher. Conwisher. Everybody say Conwisher. That's German for dishwasher. That is exactly what that means. I come from a long and distinguished line of German dishwashers. Everybody say Conwisher. You know what my first name is? It's Richard. You know what Richard means? Powerful ruler. I am the most powerful dishwasher you have ever seen in your life. Proof positive that whatever you do, if you do it under the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can do it well. It is so good to be with you tonight. Um, I, I, you know, I just cherish being under the big top with Teen Challenge. This is a holy place. This is a sanctuary. This is, this is holy ground. The prayers that people have said here, the promises of God that have been redeemed here, the love that has been claimed here, the goodness that has been declared from this place. This is a holy place. And, you know, you can take all of those degrees. You can take all of that stuff. You can take away my golf clubs. You can take away my skis. At the end of the day, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I was stuck in hours of Los Angeles traffic to prepare my heart to be in with you. And I believe that tonight, I've got a word for you. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Let the good news come now, O oh Father, not only in word, but with power, with your spirit, that not by might, but by your ways. We know, God, that apart from you, we can do for nothing, and so I pray that you will infuse my words with your very presence, and that you will touch each person's heart here, that you will speak to them. As John the Baptist once said, may I decrease so that thou may increase. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. And all of God's children said, Amen. scientists refer to it as frigatriscadecophobia. That's what I'm talking about. And the question is, do you have it? Frigatriscadecophobia afflicts 19 million people in the United States. And the question is, are you one of those 19 million? Frigatriscadecophobia is the scientific term for somebody who is afraid of the date Friday the 13th. 19 million people. Economists estimate that every time a Friday lines up with the 13th of the month, that the American economy loses $1 billion in lost revenue just because it's a day. Because people won't fly, they won't buy, they don't go to work, they don't close that deal. One billion dollars, because a Friday lines up with a 13, and that freaks some of us out. Do you have frigatriscadecophobia? Probably not. Now, statistically speaking, somebody in this room does, but everybody in this 
Big Top is afraid of something. So here's what I want you to do to start tonight. I want you to turn to somebody next to you, and I want you, don't filter it. Don't tell them something that you think that they want to hear. I just want you to name one thing that scares you. Turn to somebody next to you and tell them what scares you. All right. I didn't say have a meeting about it. I said name one thing that scares you. All right. Let me give you a list. Let me, I just, I jotted down a couple of things that tend to scare people. Heights. Anybody afraid of heights? Needles. Anybody afraid of needles? Depending on the context, right? <laughs> Suffocation, anybody afraid of not being able to breathe? Terrorism? Snakes? Fat? Germs? Vomiting? Drowning? Dentists? The dark? That's not what keeps me up at night. Spiders, I heard spiders were here. You know what keeps me up at night? One thing keeps me, keeps me up at night. It's clowns. It's what I'm talking about. Right there. Creepiest thing on God's green earth. Clowns. They show up at kids' parties. They have to go to therapy the rest of their life. It's no good. I'm telling you, I'm starting to sweat just thinking about it. You know what some people say? Some people say their number one fear is, they say that their number one fear is public speaking. Anybody afraid of public speaking? I actually, I actually don't think that public speaking is something that people are really afraid of. And they're like, that's because you do this all the time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I think it's because most of our fears, there's a fear behind the fear. I actually don't think that people are ever afraid of standing up and talking. I think what we're afraid of is we're afraid of being embarrassed. We're afraid of being ashamed. We're afraid of people looking down on us. So a lot of the times when we say we have fears, there's, there's a, a hidden fear behind the fear that the Holy Spirit wants to get to. And here's the other thing is, is that I don't just think that it's particular things that we're afraid of. I believe that we are now living in what some people refer to as the age of anxiety. I serve, I serve as a trustee for the school that I went to college in, and so we're a part of kind of a, an overall management team. And did you know that in the last six years, school hasn't changed size. In the last six years, we have double the number of counseling appointments at the university where I serve than we did just six years ago. And almost all of that increase has to do with fear and anxiety. We live in the age of terror. And the question is, what can we do about it? Max Lucado describes kind of our age of anxiety by saying, we live in the midst of an age of, uh, of kind of a meteor shower of what ifs. What if I don't have what it takes? What if I run out? God bless you. This is a Christian assembly. Somebody say God bless you when somebody sneezes. What's wrong with you people? Your mother's raised you better than that. I'm from Georgia. I know these things. 
God bless you, friend. I don't care what else they say. God bless you. A meteor shower of what ifs. What if, what if I don't have what it takes? What if that person doesn't like me? What if that person rejects me? What if I run out? It's this, it's this shower of what ifs. And it's literally killing us. I mean, it's literally killing us. For the first time in over a century, the age, the average age of somebody's lifespan has actually gone down in America. I mean, we, we just kind of believed that we were going to always live longer and longer lives with all the technology that we have. And our lifespan is actually starting to shrink. And I think a lot of it is because we're afraid to live and we don't know what we're living for. The most, the most common command in the Bible from the words of Jesus is the command to not be afraid. Say, be not afraid with me. Afraid. 140 times in the Bible, most common phrase that Jesus says. Do you think we ought to take that command seriously? Yes. I, a couple of things I think we got to get straight here. One, one is, is that we, sometimes we hear that command, be not afraid, and there's a part of us that, that just feels guilty the minute that we, we hear that because we know, we know we're afraid. And the deal is, is that you need to understand that fear is an emotion. It is not a sin. It is not a sin to be afraid. It's a question of whether or not you are living and dwelling in your fear. Now, that's a sin. Your body is hardwired to be afraid at the appropriate time. So here's the other thing you need to do. Healthy fear is a good thing. You should be afraid of walking too close to the edge of that cliff. If you're not, there's something wrong with you. You should be afraid of darting out in traffic for fear of that car hitting you. That's, your body has been wired. Um, you should be afraid of not living up to your part of the bargain in a relationship that that person will leave you. There, there's a certain part of healthy fear. I mean, the Bible talks about the fear of the wife is the beginning of wisdom. Wait a minute, my wife put that in the notes. I didn't, I didn't put that. No, 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 it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the fear of the wife is a good second The problem, when, we, when Jesus says, do not be afraid, what he's saying is don't let your life be dominated by fear. Don't let your life be manipulated by fear. Don't let your life be consumed by fear. We live in the midst of an age of anxiety and there are things that make us afraid. And the problem is, is that we have a tendency to camp out there. It's like in the 23rd Psalm when when it, we just keep walking right through the green pasture and we lie down in the dark valley when it's supposed to be the other way around. We're supposed to lie down in the green pasture. We're supposed to keep walking when you get to the dark valley, but we got it all backwards and upside down. Don't let fear control your life. So tonight, I want to read a passage for you. Now, normally I'd have you open your Bibles. I want this to be like story time, so I just want you to listen. This is... This is God's people in the Old Testament on the precipice 
of entering into the promises land, promised land. They were about to inherit and inhabit the promises of Almighty God. They are one mile away. We know where they were at this moment. Geographically, put the pen down. We know where they were in this moment. That they are about to go into the promised land and they have sent in some spies, an advance party. And this is how it goes. And so the spies came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them in the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does indeed flow with milk and with honey. Here is its fruit, but the people who live there are powerful. The cities there are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of, thank you. Two people are listening to what the preacher has to say to him. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But then the men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack those people who are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. And they said, the land that we have explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And that night, all the members of the community raised their voices, and they wept out loud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt, or if we had died in the wilderness, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephna, who were among those who had explored the land, they tore their clothes. Pause right moment for a moment there. They tore their clothes because what the people were saying was blasphemy. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land that we passed through and explored, it's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. This passage is about fear And it's about what fear does. And the first thing that fear does is it causes you to forget the past. Everybody say, forget the past. past. This is the same group of people. This is the same group of people who were slaves in Egypt when all of a sudden, in 10 different contests, our God wins against all the fake gods of Egypt. It's the same group of people. It's the same group of people that went through the dry ground of the Red Sea while the largest and greatest empire and army of the world was flooded out. They didn't even have to raise a sword. This is the same group of people. 
This is the same group of people that followed a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. This is the same group of people. This is the same group of people who had no provisions in the wilderness and each and every day God gave them manna so that they might survive. This is the same group of people that though they wandered for a long time, that their shoes didn't wear out, that their clothes didn't wear out because God miraculously provided them in the midst of the desert. And this is the same group of people that now find themselves one mile, one mile from inhabiting and inheriting the promises that God has given to them, that they are now on the precipice of receiving all the goodness that God has in store for them. And they get scared. And when they get scared, they forget all of that stuff. Later in chapter 14, verse 22, it says this, that they are the people who saw the glory and the signs that he performed in Egypt. They saw all that stuff. They just don't remember it. Here's what you need to know. When you get afraid you will rewrite the past on the basis of your fears. And you will not remember what God has done for you. You'll forget. Pastor by the name of Tim Keller says this passage, you need to understand it kind of historically and significantly, that this, that this moment in Israel's history is so significant. The whole contest was Egypt. It was like, he says it's, it's analogous to having an army and taking the city of New York and then with that same army going down into southern Mississippi in front of a small town, looking at the small town and saying, I don't think we can take it. Now, Tim Keller is from New York. It's an apt analogy, but he does not know how well armed a small town in Mississippi is. But I do believe he's actually right. I mean, Egypt was the greatest empire in the world, and without lifting a finger, God rescues them and saves them. That he will fight for them, and he has promised them into this land, and they get there on the edge of this land, and they see handfuls of tribes of where I'm from, from Georgia, you would say rednecks, and they're like, no, we can't do that. They have seen the greatest thing in the history of the world, and they have forgotten it. The first thing that fear does is it calls you to forget the past. Everybody say, forget the past. Forget the, past. the second thing that fear does is it causes you to exaggerate the present. Exaggerate the present. I have a daughter who struggles with high levels of anxiety ever since she was a little girl. She has always been anxious and afraid, and it paralyzes her at times. We have this children's book that we would read to her about what to do when you worry too much. And what it describes is that, that your worries are kind of like a garden, that what you pay attention to will likely grow bigger that if you pay attention to tomatoes in your garden, your tomatoes are probably gonna get bigger. And if you pay attention to the lettuce in your garden, that your lettuce will probably grow, it will get bigger. Did you notice 
how this Bible story describes the people. The people in the land, they're like giants. Now I'm from Texas originally, so I appreciate a tale that gets bigger and bigger. You go fishing and at first the fish is this big and then by the time you tell your wife, the fish is this big and then by the time you get back to the office and you're telling your buddies, the fish is this big and then by the time you put the photo on the wall, you photoshopped it and now the fish is this big. (laughs) Fear causes you to exaggerate the presence, the people, the people they said, they're, they're like giants. We're like grasshoppers to them. They're all of great size. We work on this with our daughter who struggles with anxiety. We call it catastrophizing. It's about the worst case scenario that your mind cannot help but go to the worst case Scenario. One pastor that I know describes fear in this way. He says, it's false evidence appearing real. That's what fear is. False evidence appearing real. Were the people tall? Probably. Were they giants? No. The land devours the people living on it. Seriously, now the land is eating people? (laughs) Do you think that they're exaggerating this a little bit? First thing that fear does, cause you to forget the past. Say, forget the past. past. Second thing that fear does is it causes you to exaggerate the present. Exaggerate the present? Can you say that? the The third thing that fear does is it cages the future. Say that with me. It cages the future. Oh, wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? Remind me what their occupation was back in Egypt. They were slaves. Yeah, those were the good old days. That's what we should do. I'll bet if we go talk to the new Pharaoh, he will give us positions in middle management and we will live comfortable lives. We should go back. Mm -mm. That's not a good idea but they literally want to get rid of Moses and Aaron after all that they've seen and witnessed. And so here's the, here's the deal. We miss this detail. They are getting ready to go into the promised land. Do you know when they actually go into the promised land? 38 years later. They do this for 38 years. This is what fear does to you. When you're caught in fear, you will end up in this perpetual cycle of your own making and you will keep doing this over and over and over again. And God is like, you're a mile away. Just go into the promise. They're stuck. Perhaps you know what it's like to be stuck. Perhaps you know what it's like to chase your tail. Perhaps you know what it's like to not feel like that you have a future. Most of the time, it's because of fear. Bless you. God bless you. It's like saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Bless you. Who do you think is doing the blessing? That's a different sermon, but I got all night. 
All right, so so what? So, so what can we do about it? What can we do with this age of anxiety, the fears that we have, knowing what fear does to us, what can we do about it? The first thing that you can do is you can focus. And here's what, I'm, here's what I mean by that. Let's imagine that I'm, it's a hypothetical situation. Let's imagine I'm on a date with my wife. And I'm out at a restaurant. It's not like a super nice restaurant because it's got like a bar and there's TVs and that kind of stuff. And so, and so just over my wife's left shoulder is a TV. And let's hypothetically say that ESPN is on that TV. Am I looking at my wife? Is this going to end well for me? Because the fear of the wife is the beginning of wisdom. Here's the deal. I would say this if my wife were standing right here. I, if ESPN is on, I cannot help but watch that TV. That's right. That's all the gospel you needed to hear tonight, right? If it's on, I'm going to watch it. But you know what I can do? I can get up and I can change that channel. Because I'm telling you, if it's one of those stupid home improvement shows, let me, let me watch people update their houses for entertainment. Or who's singing, who's seeing whom on some bachelor show or something. I got, that's got nothing on me. I know I lost half of the audience when I just disparaged the bachelor right there. But that can be on and I'm going to be looking at my wife the whole time. Here's, there's, in your mind right now, science has proven this, in your mind there's basically a TV show running and you cannot help but look at the screen that's in your mind, but you know what you can do? You can change the channel. Your mind is your place of first freedom and you will never change your feelings by trying to change your feelings, but God has given you the innate ability to determine what you are going to focus on. That is exactly what he has given you to do for the first step to being able to get beyond your fears is to be able to change the channel. What are you think about? Think about what you are thinking. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is good, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable. If there is anything of excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about Game of Thrones or something along those lines? That's not what you ought to be thinking about. Put it through the filter. Is it good? Is it honorable? Is it just? Nope, 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 nope. What you think about might be the most important decision that you make each and every day for Jesus Christ. So the first thing you need to do if you're afraid is you've got to get up and change that channel. The second thing that you've got to do is you've got to slow way down. You and I, as one of my professors used to say, we were made for camel travel and we were behaving like we are supersonic jets. <laughs> and one of the greatest reasons that anxiety and fear and worry are on the rise in this country is because we are just trying to move to fast. Besides idolatry, which is taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing, besides idolatry, the, num the number two commandment that we break most frequently is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
And the reason that we break the Sabbath is because we are trying to find our own enoughness independent from God. And the Sabbath is given to us to remind us that we were no longer slaves. This is why we have got to take a break. And so let me get a little technical with you about kind of the science behind all of this. Can you bear with me for a moment for this? All right. This is why this is important. This is how this works. Anxiety in your brain and in mine is not the addition of something to our brain, but it's the subtraction of something. God made your brain and mine with particular neurotransmitters that are running around all the time. And these little neurotransmitters, scientists refer to them as happy messengers, or the way that I would put a Jesus spin on that is that they are the mental peacemakers that God has put in your mind and in mine. And here's what we know from the science that when you move too fast and try to do too much, those mental peacemakers are not there. And that is why the fear goes up. And so the first thing that you can do to get a kind of not have your life dominated by fear is to focus. The second thing that you can do in order to have fear not dominate your life is to slow down. And the third thing that you can do is you can pray. Bible says, do not worry about anything, but in everything, pray. You can worry about something or you can pray about something. You cannot do both of those things at the same time. They occupy the same real estate in your heart and your soul and your mind. You have a decision every time you are afraid to say, should I worry about this or should I pray about it? Worry is just a basic form of meditation. It's just meditating on the wrong things. There's a lot of science behind meditation, behind mindfulness. And what I want to say to all of that is, yes, meditating is good. Mindfulness is good. But where modern science gets this wrong or is at least inadequate is this. Mindful of what? Meditating on what? Or on whom, as the case may be. I don't believe the goal, like a lot of the Eastern religions is, I don't believe the goal is just to empty your mind. The goal is to empty your mind in order for it to be filled with the Shekinah glory of our Heavenly Father. That's why we empty our minds. Because I actually think the vacuum of emptying your mind, of just being mindful, mindful of your body, what? Mindful of your breathing, what? Okay, okay, but like take it a step further. Mindful of the promises and the goodness and the love and the joy of Almighty God. Next thing you can do, so you can focus, you can slow down, you can pray. Next thing you can do, you can stay close. In the Bible, it almost always pairs together the phrase, do not be afraid. And then it says exactly right, for I am with you. The ultimate cure to our anxiety is being in the presence of Almighty God. True story. True story of a snowstorm this last year in Pennsylvania. There was a group of elementary school students who were on, who were on a, um, they were on a bus. What was supposed to be about a 30-minute commute 
in order to get to school turned into five and a half hours. Snowstorms just got them completely stuck. They were stuck in a traffic jam that they just could not go anywhere. And one of the students who was a fifth grader had a phone, called his mom. The mom called the school, um, talked to the principal. You know what the principal did? The principal found out the fifth grader's phone number, got on a little FaceTime video chat, and sat there for hours and read stories to those kids. Those kids weren't afraid. You want to know why? Because he was with them. You don't have to be afraid, regardless of whatever storm it is that you are going through, because he is with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Beginning of Matthew, look, the virgin is with child, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then at the end of the gospel of Matthew, it says, remember this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. People think that there's all these techniques, there's all these patterns, there's all these things that we need to do in order to not be afraid. And yes, those things are very helpful, but they will only take you so far. The only way to not have your life dominated by worries and by anxieties and by fear is to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's because he is with you that you don't have a reason to be afraid. And so he can say to them as they are about to go into the promised land at the beginning of of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not worry about anything because why? Because I am with you. That's all you need. You know what the last thing is that you can do in order to not be afraid? You can laugh. Martin Luther... Martin Luther said the one thing the devil can't stand is to be laughed at. And we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Let me tell you, let me tell you a story. This is a true story. This isn't one of those preacher stories. This is a true story. I have a pastor friend up in Northern California. His name's Renee Schleffer. Yes, he's a dude and his name is Renee. And he has a guy in his congregation. Okay, let me back up the bus a little bit because it's kind of funny. So I was, I was speaking at a conference and, um, and, and, I, and I looked at the brochure and the brochure didn't have any pictures in it. And it said, you know, the morning speaker is Richard Conwisher. The evening pick speecher, speaker is Renee Schleffer. And I'm like, oh, they've paired me up with this, this woman pastor from somewhere. And then I show up at the pre-meeting for prayer and he's like, hi, my name's Renee. Did not see that coming. So Renee and I have actually become really good friends. He's a great guy, and he leads this great church in Northern California. He tells, he tells about a guy in his church by the name of Dan. And Dan, uh, again, true story, um, had this, this cough that just wouldn't go away. Like a couple of months, just, <coughs> just could not shake it. And in, it's Christmas Eve. And, um, and it's Christmas Eve and, and they're at the Christmas Eve service and he's coughing like crazy. And finally his daughter is like, dad, you have got to go see somebody about this. You don't look good. And so he makes it through the Christmas Eve service and he gets to, he gets to the, 
He gets to the hospital ER. He's sitting next to his doctor he, or daughter. He has one of those coughing fits. His eyes roll into the back of his head. He passes out on the floor. They wheel him in there. He doesn't just have like a regular run-of-the-mill virus. He has a very rare form of pneumonia that combined with a little bit of diabetes. And before you know it, Dan is in a coma that he doesn't come out of for several months. So imagine this, you've got a little cough, you pass out in the ER waiting room, and you wake up a couple of months later, but there was several things that happened over the course of the months that they had to do to keep him alive. He coded, he died literally three times, and they had to resuscitate him and bring him back to life. Gangrene started to set in in certain parts of his body as different organs started to shut down. And in order to keep him alive, they had to cut off certain parts of his body. First, they had to cut off his left toes, then they have to cut off his right toes, and then they had to cut off his left leg, then they had to cut off his right leg. They had to cut off part of his nose, they had to cut off a little part of his head. And getting the trach tube in and out, they lacerated his vocal cords. And so for the rest of his life, he would always talk like this. And so two and a half months later, he wakes up and he looks down and he doesn't have any legs. How would that challenge your faith? So Renee, when his friend Dan in the congregation wakes up, gets the phone call, drops what he's doing at the office, races over to the hospital, runs into the hospital room, says, Dan, Dan, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you're alive. Are you okay, Dan? And Dan looked at his pastor and said this. He said, Renee, today I woke up and I looked down and I'm not half the man that I used to be. <laughs> so strong is this man's faith that it has never put out the, the fire of his joy. And sometimes it gets Dan into a little bit of trouble. He came up, he came up to Pastor Renee after one of the services one time. Uh, he had been fitted with prosthetic legs. And if he's wearing pants, these prosthetics are so good that you, you basically cannot tell that he, that he doesn't have legs. And he went with a group of people to Great Adventure in Northern California, which is like a Six Flags park. And Dan decided he's going to ride a roller coaster that's called Invertigo. Okay, now, a couple of things that you need to know about Invertigo. One is, is that it's not one of those roller coasters that starts out slowly and then starts to work its way up and then goes down. No, no, no. It shoots you out immediately like you're, you're rocketed right out of a cannon. That's the first thing you need to know. Second thing you need to know is it's not like a traditional roller coaster in the sense that you are facing all in the same direction. They put you in these cars where you're facing other people. So you're watching them and they're watching you. The third thing that you need to know in advance of what's about to happen is, is, that, is that it's one of those rides that you go through once with all the loop-de-loops and things like that, and then you go backwards the same way to where you started, okay? So Dan, with his pants on and his prosthetic legs, he sits down in the little cart and he gets like across the way from like this 12-year-old girl that he's never seen before. 
And with his lacerated larynx, he's like, how you doing? I'm Dan. She's like, okay, creepy guy. <laughs> Puts that down. Ride takes off and Dan's legs bend upward at a biologically impossible angle. And Dan's going, Wee! And this little girl who's facing him on the roller coaster is like, ah! As they start going through all the loop-de-loops, Dan's prosthetic legs loosen up and they start spinning like pinwheels around and around and around and then when they get to the end of the roller coaster there's so much forward momentum that Dan's prosthetic legs fly out of their pant legs like torpedoes from a submarine Missile launch one, go. <laughs> Missile launch two, go. <laughs> imagine, imagine you pull up to Six Flags. You're so excited, you're walking down, and you're like, hey, what do you want to ride? I don't know, what do you want to ride? Hey, let's go ride in Vertigo. And you see limbs flying off of the ride. You're like, no, I'm good. Good, I don't, I don't need to ride that one tonight. So his pant legs are empty, but he has to go back through the ride. And so now his empty pant legs are like waving at this little girl's face. And at this point, she's grabbing her own legs and she's yelling, no, no. And they get back, they get back to the station and the thing goes up, she goes flying out of there. Dan's not going anywhere until somebody finds his legs. So he's, so he's telling, he's telling his pastor this story and he's like, Dan, that poor girl is traumatized. Why didn't you tell her what was going on? And he said, oh, pastor, I tried. But I couldn't. I was laughing too hard. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We not only have nothing to be afraid of, we have every reason to celebrate. 
The Bible says they celebrate his abundant goodness and joyfully sing of his righteousness. The people in Jesus' day accused him of being a drunk. He wasn't drunk. He just had that much joy in him. People should look at us today and they should say, there's something wrong with you. I want to live my life in such a way that it doesn't make any sense without the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm tired. I am tired of us being on the defensive as followers of Jesus Christ, moping around, boy, things aren't as good as they used to be. Perfect love casts out all fear. And that doesn't mean, it does not mean, don't let anybody tell you that that means you need to figure out how to love perfectly so that you won't be afraid. It means that God loves you so perfectly that there is no room for fear in your life or mine. For God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and wisdom and of discipline. We live in an age of anxiety, and I believe when followers of Jesus Christ claim the love and the joy of God, we will remember what he has done for us. We will not catastrophize what is happening around us. And we will not be caged. We will not be stuck. We will not spend the next generation chasing our tail and wandering around because we, even in the valley of the shadow, we know that he is with us. I don't know what it is tonight that you're really afraid of. I don't know what it is that keeps you up at night. And my guess is the very thing that we talked about at the beginning when you told a neighbor what you're afraid of, I'm guessing if I could give you truth serum, that's not what you would say. I'll bet there's something else. Hardest thing I have ever done, I did a couple of months ago with one of my daughters who has an eating disorder, was to check her in against her will in order for her to be in a clinic so she could get well. Hardest thing I've ever done is to know that there was a little girl in my house who's 15 years old who was starving on my watch. And I'll tell you, I'm a pastor and I got degrees and I know all this stuff. I can quote it and I was afraid. And so maybe the greatest litmus test that you're not afraid anymore is that you would be willing to pull alongside with a brother or sister and you would say, you know what I'm really afraid of? It's this. I was afraid that I was going to lose my daughter. She was this close to starvation, even though she had all this food in front of her. It is an insidious emotional and mental disease. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's not the end of her story. And it's not the end of yours. And so, Holy Spirit, will you descend upon these people tonight and will you fill this 
tent with your love and your grace and your power. Will you anoint what is happening tonight, God, that we might be willing to be honest and to lay down our fears and our anxieties, our insecurities, our worries, and we would throw them and cast them before you, cast your cares before you because you care for us.